0: Let us tell you a story.
1: July 27th, 1917, Paris, France. A military courtroom packed to the gills, everyone jockeying for space to sit, air to breathe, and a view. What is the occasion that's brought all of these people here? What is this new crime of the century that has captured everyone's attention? A woman walks through the crowd, silent and alone, ill and bloated from harsh conditions in prison, but she keeps her head held high,
0: She is hated, reviled, and not just for being a criminal, but for being the worst kind of criminal, an enemy of the state. But she's not just any woman. She's famous, at least around Paris. She's Matahari, perhaps one of the most well-known exotic dancers to light up the Parisian stage in the early 20th century. But all that doesn't matter now. In the eyes of the men who glare at her, she's a spy. Shrewd,
1: manipulative, selfish, seductive. All words used to describe this alleged double agent who spent the bloodiest years of World War I working both sides of the conflict, sleeping with German and French officers alike, selling secrets for cash and favors from the highest bidders.
0: In the largest conflict the world has seen so far, this one woman used her beauty charm and sex appeal to traverse the front for her own benefit, and sent some 40,000 French soldiers to their deaths with her lies and betrayal. Truly, all of the scoundrels and villains we've talked about on this show, this woman must be the worst. But did she really
1: do any of it? Margareta Gertruda MacLeod, Nezel, aka Matahari, sits at this military tribunal, a slumped, lonely figure in a sea of men who have already decided her guilt without hearing her story. She looks small, afraid, not someone who committed the heinous war crimes of which she is accused.
0: Yet, with her fear, there seems to be something else. An inner peace surrounds her. It's an acceptance, an acceptance of what cruelty awaits her a cruelty that she has faced all of her life, exclusively at the hands of men. Powerful men. So how did she get here, if not by committing the acts of which she stands accused? Perhaps she really is guilty. Perhaps through unspeakable acts of selfish espionage, she gave away state secrets, resulting in the deaths of 40,000 Allied forces. But maybe, even more tragically, she didn't do anything. Any of it.
1: Yes, and we'll get to that. Either way, all you need to know right now is that Matahari, as she awaits the fire squad's bullets, has one final performance to give. And this one will be the most dramatic of her career. History happened. The good, bad, the ugly. This is the underside of history. The lesser known pieces lost in the bigger picture of time. From the creators of Myths and Legends and from cast media, this is Scoundrel, history's forgotten villains. We're Jason and Carissa Weiser.
0: Join us every episode as we explore the dark, quirky, and bizarre history that you might not have heard before, but really should.
1: Despite the story she'll tell later in life, Matahari is not born in some far-off exotic land. Instead, she is born Margareta Gertrude Zell in 1876 in the Netherlands, the daughter of a Dutch hatmaker and oil investor, she comes from a family that's very well off. Margareta and her siblings enjoy a comfortable childhood. Exclusive private schooling, horseback riding. Her father simply loves spoiling his only daughter, lavishing her with fancy dresses, and even a goat-drawn carriage. There's no doubt that it is here when young Margareta gets an insatiable taste for the glamor she will seek throughout adulthood. But for now, there's no expense too grand for the Zell family.
0: Until, of course, they go bankrupt in 1889. Yeah, young Margareta's father makes a series of disastrous investments, completely wiping out any sense of security for her, a nagging feeling that will follow throughout the rest of her life. Bankruptcy certainly isn't good for any marriage, and 13-year-old Margareta watches as her parents clash until her father eventually abandons the family for another woman, that is
1: as if the throes of poverty and losing her father aren't a big enough one-two gut punch for the 15-year-old Margarita. In 1891, she watches as her mother, Aunt Jay, falls sick and eventually dies.
0: Margarita watches as her mother is slowly lowered into the cold European ground. With every inch the mother descends, Margarita doesn't despair. No, she does the opposite. She hardens. Two immutable facts reveal themselves in her young mind. Life is not fair, and she's alone now. The only person that can save Margareta is Margareta. Her stares go from sad to blank.
1: It's 1893, and with Margareta's father now remarried to Susanna Katerina Tenhova, yes, the woman he left his family for, things are changing even more. Margareta's father has a new wife, and a new life, and no need for his old one. A 17-year-old Margareta is sent to live with her godfather, A man named Mr. Visser in Sneak, not far from her hometown of Laywarden.
0: This is an important moment for Margarita in her life. One that we want you to pay special attention to as we follow her journey. Here she is, a 17-year-old girl, moving from the only home she ever knew to live with a new family, live a new life. Because of decisions made by other people, because of circumstances entirely outside of her control.
1: Control. That's a word to think carefully about as you listen to the rest of Margarita's story, because it's something that she's never been allowed to have before. She exists at the whim of powerful men, her fortunes rising and falling with their moods. It's not hard to imagine the restlessness, the yearning for agency and freedom that Margarita must feel, especially right now, when the autonomy and freedom of a woman is yet again under the scrutiny of powerful men.
0: But there's no use in dwelling on it. Margarita certainly doesn't. If she's learned anything from the dissolution of her family, it's that if she wants to survive, she needs to take care of herself. So as soon as she moves in with Mr. Visser, she starts training to be a kindergarten teacher. It's going well. Margarita's learning not just how to teach, but how to be independent. And above all, independence is what she wants.
1: But the bucolic dream of small-town school teacher isn't meant to be for her. By this point, Margareta has matured into the beauty that she will eventually become world-renowned for, with dark hair, a dark complexion, and striking, unconventional looks. She stood out, quote, like an orchid among dandelions, according to a classmate of hers. And the headmaster of Margarita's school notices, too. He takes a special interest in her. And on this show, special interest is rarely good.
0: When her godfather, Mr. Visser, finds out about this unwanted attention, he puts an end to it, and to Margarita's teaching career. The scandal is too much for Margarita, in this small city of sneak. And Margarita leaves Mr. Visser's home to find a new fortune, living with her uncle in the Hague. So here we find Margarita, again living at the whim of a man with more agency than her, desperate to find some way to make a life for herself, and hoping she isn't abandoned again in the meantime.
1: But then... Out of the pit of all this uncertainty, Margareta finds hope. While reading the newspaper one morning, Margareta comes across an advertisement put out by a man named Rudolf MacLeod, a colonel in the Dutch army. MacLeod is stationed in the Dutch East Indies, what we now call Indonesia, but is home in the Netherlands on sick leave. There's evidence to suggest he's home recovering from syphilis, but let's not ruin the moment for Margareta right now. She's been through enough.
0: MacLeod is fairly straightforward in his ad. Being home in the Netherlands has helped him to decide that he's ready to settle down, get married, and start a family of his own. And he's looking for the right woman to make that happen. Serendipitous timing, because Margareta is looking for the right man.
1: Okay, so let's take a second here and discuss this. Is Margareta really just looking for the right man? It's hard for us to say. And it's even harder for us in 2022 to try and read the motives of a young woman like Margareta at the turn of the 20th century. But, put yourself in her shoes for a moment. She wants to be free, to be independent. But is that really a practical option for her?
0: Especially after the life experiences she's had so far, it's not hard to imagine a woman who believes that finding the right man, somebody who's willing to grant her that freedom, even if under the guise of marriage, is probably the best she can hope for. In the battle between freedom and stability, maybe stability feels more... Well, you get it. At any rate... Margarita swipes right and reaches out to Colonel McLeod, and they meet.
1: Different accounts arise regarding exactly how this initial meeting goes. Some say it's love at first sight, and the two genuinely fall for each other. Others say it's more skin deep than that that McLeod is taken by Margarita's beauty, and she by the status and honor of his uniform. Even others say it's purely a match made out of convenience. Marrying Rudolf moves Margareta squarely into the Dutch upper class and puts her finances on stable footing. And for Rudolf, a wife and family give him the status he needs to move up in the world.
0: Generally with these stories, the truth lies somewhere in the middle of it all. We have to remember too that Margareta is still a young woman, really a teenage girl by our modern standards. And the prospect of traveling around the world with her adventurous military husband must have been intoxicating. Whatever the motives are, They're agreed on by both sides. Margareta and Rudolf are married within a few months.
1: When Rudolf resumes his military service, Margareta follows him across the world to his station in Malong, a city on the east side of the island of Java. Immediately, Margareta is taken by the culture. She studies it throughout her time in Indonesia and eventually will join a dance company there. We'll see later just how important this becomes. But at this moment, Margareta's marriage to Rudolf is far from the fairy tale dream she hoped it would be. In fact, it's closer to a nightmare. Rudolph is a serial adulterer, a violently jealous partner, and an angry drunk. He blames Margareta when he fails to receive a promotion he's been gunning for, claiming that she embarrassed him by flaunting her looks and seeking attention from other officers.
0: We do know that Margareta engaged in several affairs with some of the other officers there, but it seems like this was more out of a sense of abandonment by Rudolph as he pursued his own extramarital affairs, then out of a desire to hurt him. Rudolph's jealousy quickly turns physical, and he begins abusing Margareta shortly after arriving on the island. Despite all of this turmoil, they still have two children together.
1: Their names are Louise, Jean and Norman John. They are the absolute lights of her eye. To Margareta, they're the only good things to come to her in an otherwise cruel and unforgiving world. They are her heart something that a man can never take from her, at least she thought.
0: As a result of her husband's constant philandering, Margareta contracts syphilis before giving birth to both Louise Jean and Norman John, which in turn infects both of the children. Treatment for syphilis is very primitive around the turn of the century, and doctors believe that ingesting mercury can help cure the disease.
1: As a doctor arrives at their house to treat Norman John's recent syphilitic flare-up, Margareta can't help but feel a sense of guilt for the fact that the harmless child has such a brutal disease in the first place. As she hands the child over to the doctor for his mercury treatment, she whispers, "Please, be careful with my baby." The doctor smiles. "We always are," he says, and he takes the child.
0: But he isn't. And young Norman John dies of mercury poisoning. There, of course, is another theory that one of Rudolph's enemies poisoned the children's dinners one night, but this is heavily discredited. Margareta is beyond devastated for the loss of her son. In her childhood, a man plunged her family into the despair of poverty, dissolved her family, broke her mother's heart, and may have ultimately killed her. Now, a man gave her son syphilis, and another man killed him.
1: With no other options, Margareta briefly leaves Rudolf to be with another officer named Van Rede. But Rudolf convinces her to come back to him, promising to change, but he doesn't. The abuse and the adultery continue. When the couple returns to the Netherlands in 1902, Margareta, now 26, can take it no more. After eight years of marriage, she officially separates from Rudolf. However, Rudolf refuses to take this insult lying down. So he turns to his old modus operandi. He takes an ad out in the newspaper, slamming Margareta as a cold, neglectful wife who should receive no help whatsoever wherever she goes in the Netherlands.
0: And the worst part about this attack on her is that it works. As a divorced woman, Margareta has few options. And Rudolph's refusal to pay any kind of child support makes things even more difficult. She tries her best to care for her surviving daughter, Louise and it's rumored that she turns to sex work as a way to make ends meet. One day, Louise, Margareta's daughter, goes to visit her father, but Rudolph never returns her to Margareta.
1: Without the resources to fight Rudolph legally, Margareta is forced to accept the reality that he has taken her daughter from her and she will not be getting her back. She takes some solace in knowing that, while Rudolph was a terrible husband, he was always a good father. Louise will later die at the age of 21, presumably from complications related to the syphilis she was born with.
0: By rights, Margarita could have given up at this point. Betrayed by her father, betrayed by her boss, then betrayed by her husband. It seems that there's no place for her to be happy in this world.
1: But Margarita doesn't give up. She can't. She's survived too much already in her brief time on Earth to simply succumb to despair. And despite what society may think, Margarita is not without the tools to succeed.
0: It wasn't just abuse and disease that she received in her marriage to Rudolph. Throughout her years with him, she learned how to speak German, French, Italian, Spanish, and Malay. And even more importantly, she learned something else that will change the course of her life. She learned to dance in Indonesia, an intriguing, intoxicating, beautiful form of dance that many people in Europe have yet to see.
1: And Margareta is going to show them all. Paris, the Belle Époque. One of the most iconic and beautiful times in the city's history. France is flourishing, especially in the world of art. And Parisians look every day for new things to surprise and entertain them.
0: It's here that Marguerite first puts her talents on display at private parties in people's homes. But when she steps out to dance for the city of Paris, she is completely transformed. She's no longer Marguerite Macleod or even Marguerite Zell. She's Mata Hari, Marguerite actually adopted the name back in 1897, while she was still living on the island of Java with Rudolph. It's the Malay word for sun, literally translated to eye of the day. Matahari feels like it's the perfect way to describe her act.
1: It's also a way for her to live in Paris without the specter of her divorce and misfortune following her, a way to avoid the scrutiny and rumors that Rudolph set out into the world. But more than anything, Matahari is a new identity, It severs her past from her present and gives her a whole new future to pursue.
0: Matahari's act is unlike anything Paris has ever seen before. And under other circumstances, she might be arrested for lewdness or obscenity. She dances in sheer clothing, sometimes stripping almost completely naked.
1: But Matahari cleverly avoids any scrutiny by claiming that she's merely reenacting ancient rituals and rites of the Javanese people. And thanks to her study of the Javanese culture during her time there, she has the knowledge to back it up, or at least fool everyone in Europe who don't know enough to call her out on it.
0: Matahari's popularity grows, and she becomes a sensation across the continent, gaining fans and clients in Europe's most prestigious upper class. Judges, military officers, industry magnates, and more are all enthralled by her beauty, her charm, her class, and her mystery. She claims that she's Javanese, or... Malaysian, or whatever ethnicity her current client finds the most exciting. And yes, we fully understand and accept that this is cultural appropriation at its most obvious. No one is condoning Matahari's theft of cultures that aren't hers. But regardless of its morality, this is how she survives and thrives in her new life. This is also where we want to take a second to just dispel one rumor that's persisted about Matahari. Many believe that on top of her exotic dancing, she makes money as a sex worker during this time. That, however, is a mischaracterization. In fact, Matahari apparently finds sex aversive after her marriage to Rudolf, too scarred by his abuse and betrayal.
1: The biggest thing right now is that whatever Matahari's doing, it's working. Her fame is rising throughout Europe. She moves from private living rooms to museums and art houses, drawing the attention of serious art and performance critics. Of course, her style is almost diametrically opposed to the more traditional European styles. And as copycats and imitators flood the continent, many critics begin to find her act cheap and salacious and attack her as, quote, a dancer who doesn't know how to dance. The thing is, they don't see what this dancing is for Matahari. More than an avenue to fame and fortune, it's a form of liberation. For the first time in her life, she's the one in control. When she wows audiences, each hip sway and each move puts them under her spell. She's the one doing the controlling. She delights in watching men become hypnotized by her movements. It's her thumb they're under, not vice versa. More importantly, this is something the men cannot take away from her. They took her childhood, her mother, even her children. But this they can never take. Try as you might, each body movement belongs to her. And it's freedom.
0: But... As quickly as she found success, Matahari finds her career in decline. There are fewer calls for her to perform. She knows she started her dancing career relatively late, but she just works harder, traveling more, trying to squeeze as much out of it as she can. Money has always been the deciding factor in her stability, and she isn't about to let this go. Then, fate intervenes. 1914. Matahari is booked to perform in Berlin when there's just this tiny little hiccup in the scheduling. Germany declares war against Russia, then France, then Britain. Suddenly, the Europe that she toured so easily devolves into war, and she's unable to leave the country. Finally, after several failed attempts, Matahari. And in an attempt to spare herself from uncertainty and despair of a major warring European city like Paris, is able to get back to one of the very few remaining neutral countries in this great conflagration, her former home, The Hague. She has an opportunity here to go back to a quiet life.
1: Well, she would have that opportunity if it weren't for Karl Kromer. Kromer is a German diplomat who explains that he's extremely interested in acquiring Matahari's services. No, no, not her dancing or the embellished fictionalized stories of her Javanese background. Cromer is far more interested in her other talents and assets, especially her fluency in multiple languages and her relationships with high-ranking military and government officials across Europe. That's right. Karl Cromer wants her to be a spy for Germany, and he offers her 20,000 francs to do it.
0: Money, the one constant. That has decided just how free Matahari is, the one thing that can help her achieve the independence she so desperately wants. Matahari stares in the mirror in her small Dutch apartment, far from the days only six months ago when she was the toast of Paris and had money to burn. 38 year old Matahari is in dire straits. For one, she is desperately alone, missing her Louise at every opportunity. For another, she's broke. The Germans seized her belongings as she crossed the border into Holland. And she's currently on her last dime. Or in her currency, her last Dutch guilder. She weighs the option before her. Maybe this opportunity is a form of retribution for all the wrongs committed to her throughout her cruel life. 20,000 francs can give her freedom, security, stability. All the things she has so longed for ever since she was a little girl. As she stares in the mirror, she knows what she has to do.
1: Matahari will later contend that she declined the offer and only took the money as a way of repaying herself for Germany stealing her belongings at the border when the war broke out and that she never intended to spy for Germany. But in any event, that night in 1914, Matahari takes the money and her life is changed forever. With her feet back under her and money in her pocket, Matahari returns to Paris, the place she called home for so long before the war. However, On her way from the Netherlands to France, her ship is stopped by the UK, where everyone aboard is questioned.
0: Because of her high-ranking affiliations and polyglot status, British intelligence decides that she is, quote, not above suspicion and decides not to let her enter the UK. She'll have to get to France through Spain instead. They're also sure to alert French intelligence, headed by Captain Georges Ledoux, to keep an eye on her as well. And yeah, Ledoux and Cromer. These are names you'll want to remember for the rest of our story. January 1916. Matahari, now 40, is back in Paris and back to her old tricks. Cavorting with powerful men, enjoying a relatively fashionable life, thanks to that 20,000 francs Cromer gave her.
1: Now, some folks would say that this is precisely the kind of spying that Matahari was contracted to do for the Germans. Spending time with French officials and military officers, gathering intel, gaining their trust... But the actual evidence to support this from the time, you could call it slim. You could also call it non-existent. It's here in Paris that Matahari meets Vadi Maslov, a decorated Russian pilot fighting for the French as part of the Russian expeditionary force that was sent to the Western Front in 1916. Maslov is dashing, roguish, heroic, and very young, 18 years younger than Matahari, in fact.
0: But when the two meet, there is nothing that can stand in the way. It is love at first sight, and the two fall madly for each other. Matahari will later describe Maslov as the love of her life, and perhaps he is the only true love of her life, the only man that she's ever loved, because he truly loves her. It matters very little that he's so young, or that he can't support her, the way other older, more established suitors might. Matahari wants Vadim, and Vadim wants Matahari. Not everything is beautiful in Paris. Matahari gets the sense that she's being watched.
1: And that's because she is. Georges Ladoux, head of French intelligence, is taking the British warning about Matahari very seriously and is watching her every move. How much of his suspicion is warranted and how much is because she's a foreign national who made a name for herself seducing powerful men is up for debate. But the reality for Matahari remains the same. Even in this city that she loves, she is not above suspicion. Vadim returns to the front following an eye injury that threatens to derail his career as a pilot. Matahari wants nothing more than to go to the front and be with her love. But as a citizen of the Netherlands, a neutral party in the war, she isn't allowed anywhere near the
0: conflict. Enter a former lover of Matahari as well. He now works for Ledoux at the Deuxième Bureau, French Intelligence. And he offers her a way to see Maslov at the front. If she agrees to go to Spain and now spy for France on Germany and deliver her information to Ledoux directly. They already know about Karl Kromer, and whether they believe her that she never spied for the Germans or not, she still stands as a valuable asset for the Allies. And for her trouble, they offer her a little bit more than Kromer's measly 20,000 francs. They offer her a million.
1: Of course, Matahari is plainly aware of the intentions of all these powerful men. They still see her as the world did before the war, a tawdry act on a stage with little beneath her sex appeal and womanhood, someone not to be taken seriously. Everyone is content using her for their own benefit, and Matahari knows it. But this isn't just about her anymore. It's about her and Vadim. With one eye, he will likely never fly again, leaving his career in question, and 1 million francs, about $3 million in today's currency, is enough for them to live comfortably for the rest of their lives.
0: Once again, money is the constant that decides Matahari's fate, that determines if she'll be stable and independent or be home to traitorous men. She says yes to the deal. Ledoux tells Matahari to wait for his instructions before traveling to Spain, but he never makes contact with her and he never sends her the money getting antsy matahari decides to take matters into her own hands she makes her way to spain
1: and is apprehended by mi5 agents and questioned by british counterintelligence this time matahari has a new story she's actually working for their side and she tells them to contact Ladu. so they do ladue responds by denying any knowledge of matahari and telling them to send her to spain why would Ledoux hang Matahari out to dry like this? It's hard to say, but we know how MI5 interpreted it. They assume Ledoux suspects Matahari of being a German agent, since they know about the Cromer meeting as well, and that Ledoux only contacted her to keep an eye on her.
0: You'll notice a pattern in this story, powerful men deciding that they know what the truth is, regardless of what Matahari tells them. At any rate, Matahari is sent to Spain, where despite Ledoux's radio silence, She seeks out high-value targets so she can cultivate valuable information and earn that million-franc payday.
1: She finds that target in Arnold von Kalle, a German diplomat who has countless, priceless secrets to divulge. Now, you'd think this guy would be difficult to crack, right? I mean, he must know that he's a target for espionage. It takes Matahari just three days with him to learn about a massive submarine attack the Germans are planning in Morocco an attack that, if the Allies could anticipate it, might turn the tide of war. Matahari tries to get in contact with Ledoux to give him the information.
0: But Ledoux never responds. Confused and still eager to pass these secrets along, she goes to another former lover, a colonel now working for Ledoux, and asks him what to do. The colonel suggests that she go back to Von Kali for more information, something more concrete. prove to Ledoux that the information is credible. This will be the beginning of the end for Matahari.
1: Matahari follows the advice and returns to Arnold, but she presses too hard and he quickly becomes suspicious. He reports her behavior back to German officials who aren't the least bit surprised to hear her name come up. After all, she never made good on Cromer's 20,000 franc offer for information, leading the Germans to believe she's been spying for the Allies and this is all the evidence they need. To take care of Mata Hari, the Germans don't assassinate her or have her poisoned or imprisoned. No, they choose to let the Allies do their dirty work for them. They send a secret message across their communication lines to Berlin, very carefully worded, where they claim that Mata Hari is a German agent who has been turned by the Allies.
0: The catch? They use a code that they know the French have already cracked. It is all a brilliant ruse meant to raise the allies' suspicions of Matahari and to have them take care of her for them. And it works. The message is the last bit of evidence George Ledoux needs to take care of that thorn in his side that is Matahari. In January 1917, when she travels to Paris to claim her million-franc reward for the information about the Moroccan submarine attack, he has her arrested on charges of treason and espionage.
1: Matahari is sent to the harshest women's prison in France, where she's isolated from her attorney and from Vadim and interrogated by a man you can easily classify as awful. Magistrate Pierre Bouchardon, a severe, harsh man who reserves a special kind of cruelty for women he deems as loose, immoral, or promiscuous, precisely the reputation that Matahari has in Europe.
0: And here we return to where we started, with Matahari on trial, facing the death penalty. She puts up a valiant effort, proclaiming her innocence throughout. Her attorney, who is well-meaning, but inexperienced in military trials, tries to poke holes in the prosecution's case, pointing out that the coded messages intercepted from the Germans, the cornerstone of their case, has likely been tampered with, possibly by Ledoux himself. They parade character witnesses from Matahari onto the stand, and many stand up for her, citing her credibility and her love for France.
1: But the biggest blow of the trial comes when Matahari reaches out to Vadim to testify on her behalf, and he refuses. Embittered by losing his eye and being forced to hear the stories and rumors of all the men she's been with in the press, the case is too much for Vadim. He tells her he doesn't care if she's innocent or guilty. He will not stand by her. Matahari faints when she hears the news, her spirit shattered, her heart broken. Some say it is here that Matahari's soul actually perishes.
0: Varim is right about one thing, though. It doesn't matter if Matahari is innocent or guilty. The trial is just a show, a kangaroo court. The French have already decided what is needed here. They need a scapegoat suffering huge losses in the war and the recent loss of 40,000 men during a failed offensive that led many soldiers to mutiny and refused to fight, the French need someone to blame, to bear the cost of their failure. And what better scapegoat than a foreign succubus preying on the lives of good French men in order to bankroll her lavish lifestyle.
1: October 15th, 1917, 41-year-old Margarita Zell, Margarita McLeod, Mata Hari is walked by 12 French soldiers to the place she will die. She is tired, ill, bloated, a shell of her former self thanks to months of mistreatment in prison. And yet she still wears her finest clothes. She refuses to wear a blindfold and she holds her head high. It's said that she even blows a kiss to one of the soldiers in her firing squad. Journalist Henry Wales is present at the execution and describes it for the newspapers to be published on October 19.
0: Simultaneously, the sound of the volley rang out. At the report, Matahari fell. She did not die how actors and movie picture stars would have us believe that people die when they are shot. She did not throw up her hands, nor did she plunge straight forward or straight back. Instead, she seemed to collapse, slowly, inertly. She settled to her knees, her head up always, and without the slightest change of expression on her face, she lay prone, motionless, with her face turned toward the sky. A non-commissioned officer drew his revolver. Bending over, he placed the revolver almost, but not quite against the left temple of the spy. He pulled the trigger, and the bullet tore into the brain of the woman.
1: What is there to take from this story? Margareta Zell was a woman who wore mystery and secrets like armor, who took the power men had over her and used it to build a new life for herself. Her world refused to see her as anything more than an object for men's pleasure. But she leveraged that into wrapping Europe around her finger, and they killed her for it.
0: Underneath the tales, stories, and facts of Matahari's life and ultimate execution is something far more sinister and disturbing. Men controlled her entire short time on earth. Her father plunged her into poverty and destroyed her family. Her husband abused her, infected her with syphilis, killed her son, and seized her daughter. But perhaps even worse is what the most powerful men in Europe did to her. Through posturing and insecurity, they waged a war so frightfully destructive It needlessly engulfed an entire continent into flames, killing a million at a time to achieve, at best, a few measly yards per battle. With a vicious cocktail of hubris, disorganization, and sheer foolishness, they murdered millions. And as the ashes began to settle by the end, and the folly of their misdeeds became apparent, they weren't man enough to take the blame. No, they put all that on a woman, a woman named Matahari.
1: As smoke of the bullets began to clear and the ghastly sight of what remained of Margareta Gertrude Zell's mutilated body, the sergeant major supervising the firing squad was heard to have said, quote, By God, this lady knows how to die. If only she was given the clemency and pardon she rightfully deserved for a crime she never committed. They would have been more dazzled by the even more brilliant way she knew how to live. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is executive produced by Jason and Carissa Weiser and Colin Thompson.
0: Today's episode was written by Jeremy Novick. It's produced by DJ Lubell and edited and sound designed by Anton Doty.
1: Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is a cast original podcast.